The Age of Chivalry, Chapter Fifteen, from Bullfinch, The Age of Chivalry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Age of Chivalry by Thomas Bullfinch, Chapter Fifteen, The Round Table. The famous enchanter Merlin had exerted all his skill in fabricating the round table. Of the seats which surrounded it he had constructed thirteen, in memory of the thirteen apostles. Twelve of these seats only could be occupied, and they only by knights of the highest fame. The thirteenth represented the seat of the traitor Judas. It remained always empty. It was called the perilous seat, ever since a rash and haughty Saracen knight had dared to place himself in it, when the earth opened and swallowed him up. In our great hall there stood a vacant chair, fashioned by Merlin ere he passed away, and carven with strange figures, and in and out the figures like a serpent ran a scroll, of letters in a tongue no man could read, and Merlin called it the Siege Perilous, perilous for good and ill, for there, he said, no man could sit, but he should lose himself the holy grail a magic power wrote upon each seat the name of the knight who was entitled to sit in it no one could succeed to a vacant seat unless he surpassed in valour and glorious deeds the knight who had occupied it before him without this qualification he would be violently repelled by a hidden force thus proof was made of all those who presented themselves to replace any companions of the order who had fallen one of the principal seats, that of Morant of Ireland, had been vacant ten years, and his name still remained over it ever since, the time when that distinguished champion fell beneath the sword of Sir Tristram. Arthur now took Tristram by the hand, and led him to that seat. Immediately the most melodious sounds were heard, and exquisite perfumes filled the place. The name of Morant disappeared, and that of Tristram blazed forth in light. The rare modesty of Tristram had now to be subjected to a severe task, for the clerks charged with the duty of preserving the annals of the round table attended, and he was required by the law of his order to declare what feats of arms he had accomplished to entitle him to take that seat. The ceremony being ended, Tristram received the congratulations of all his companions, Sir Launcelot and Guenever took the occasion to speak to him of the fair Isode, and to express their wish that some happy chance might bring her to the kingdom of Loegria. While Tristram was thus honoured and caressed at the court of King Arthur, the most gloomy and malignant jealousy harassed the soul of Mark. He could not look upon Isode without remembering that she loved Tristram, and the good fortune of his nephew gouged him to thoughts of vengeance. He at last resolved to go disguised into the kingdom of Loegria, attack Tristram by steels, and put him to death. He took with him two knights, brought up in his court, who he thought were devoted to him, and, not willing to leave Isode behind, named two of her maidens to attend her, together with her faithful Brengwain, and made them accompany him. Having arrived in the neighborhood of Camelot, Mark imparted his plan to his two knights, but they rejected it with horror, nay more, 
they declared that they would no longer remain in his service, and left him, giving him reason to suppose that they should repair to the court to accuse him before Arthur. It was necessary for Mark to meet and rebut their accusation. So, leaving Isoda in an abbey, he pursued his way alone to Camelot. Mark had not ridden far when he encountered a party of knights of Arthur's court, and would have avoided them, for he knew their habit of challenging to adjust every stranger knight whom they met. But it was too late. They had seen his armor and recognized him as a Cornish knight, and at once resolved to have some sport with him. It happened they had with them Dagenet, King Arthur's fool, who, though deformed and weak of body, was not wanting in courage. The knights, as Mark approached, laid their plan that Dagenet should personate Sir Launcelot of the Lake, and challenge the Cornish knight. They kept him in armor belonging to one of their number who was ill, and sent him forward to the crossroad to defy the strange knight. Mark, who saw that his antagonist was by no means formidable in appearance, was not disinclined to the combat. But when the dwarf rode towards him, calling out that he was Sir Launcelot of the Lake, his fears prevailed. He put spurs to his horse, and rode away at full speed, pursued by the shouts and laughter of the party. Meanwhile Isoda, remaining at the abbey with her faithful Brengwain, found her only amusement in walking occasionally in a forest adjoining the abbey. There, on the brink of a fountain girdled with trees, she thought of her love, and sometimes joined her voice and her harp, in lays reviving the memory of its pains or pleasures. One day the caitiff knight, Bruce the Pitiless, heard her voice, concealed himself, and drew near. She sang, Sweet silence, shadowy bower, and verdant lair, you court my troubled spirit to repose, whilst I, such dear remembrance rises there, awaken every echo with my woes. Within these woods, by nature's hand arrayed, a fountain springs, and feeds the thousand flowers. Ah, how my groans do all its murmurs aid! How my sad eyes do swell it with their showers! What doth my night the while? To him is given a double need. In love and arms and prize, him the round table elevates to heaven. Tristram, ah me, he hears not Isaudus cries. Bruce the pitiless, who like most other caitiffs, had felt the weight of Tristram's arm, and hated him accordingly, at hearing his name breathed forth by the beautiful songstress, impelled by a double impulse, rushed forth from his concealment, and laid hands on his victim. Isoda fainted, and Brengwain filled the air with her shrieks. Bruce carried Isoda to the place where he had left his horse, but the animal had got away from his brittle, and was at some distance. He was obliged to lay down his fair burden, and go in pursuit of his horse. Just then a knight came up, drawn by the cries of Brengwain, and demanded the cause of her distress. She could not speak, but pointed to her mistress, lying insensible on the ground. Bruce had by this time returned, and the cries of Brengwain, renewed at seeing him, sufficiently showed the stranger the cause of the distress. Tristram spurred his horse towards Bruce, who, not unprepared, ran to the encounter. Bruce was unhorsed, and lay motionless, pretending to be dead. But when the stranger knight left him to attend to the distressed damsels, he mounted his horse, 
and made his escape. The knight, now approached Isode, gently raised her head, drew aside the golden hair which covered her countenance, gazed thereon for an instant, uttered a cry, and fell back insensible. Brangwain came. Her cares soon restored her mistress to life, and they then turned their attention to the fallen warrior. They raised his visor, and discovered the countenance of Sir Tristram. Isaudus threw herself on the body of her lover, and bedewed his face with her tears. Their warmth revived the night, and Tristram on awaking found himself in the arms of his dear Isaude. It was the law of the round table that each night after his admission should pass the next ten days in quest of adventures, during which time his companions might meet him in disguised armor and try their strength with him. Tristram had now been out seven days, and in that time had encountered many of the best knights of the round table, and acquitted himself with honor. During the remaining three days, Isrode remained at the abbey, under his protection, and then set out with her maidens, escorted by Sir Tristram, to rejoin King Mark at the court of Camelot. This happy journey was one of the brightest epochs in the lives of Tristram and Isode. He celebrated it by a lay upon the harp in a peculiar measure, to which the French give the name of Triolette. With fair Isode and with love, ah, how sweet the life I lead! How blessed for ever thus to row, with fair Isode and with love! As she wills, I live and move, and cloudless days to days succeed, with fair Isode and with love, ah, how sweet the life is led! Journeying on from break of day, feel you not fatigued, my fair? Young green turf invites to play, journeying on from day to day, ah, let us to that shade away, were it but to slumber there. Journeying on from break of day, feel you not fatigued, my fair? They arrived at Camelot, where St. Launcelot received the most cordially. Isode was introduced to King Arthur and Queen Guinevere, who welcomed her as a sister. As King Mark was held in arrest under the accusation of the two Cornish knights, Queen Isode could not rejoin her husband, and Sir Launcelot placed his castle of La Joyeuse Guard at the disposal of his friends, who there took up their abode. King Mark, who found himself obliged to confess the truth of the charge against him, or to clear himself by combat with his accusers, preferred the former, and King Arthur, as his crime had not been perpetrated, remitted the penalty, only enjoining upon him, under pain of his signal displeasure, to lay aside all thoughts of vengeance against his nephew. In the presence of the king and his court, all parties were formally reconciled, Mark and his queen departed for their home, and Tristram remained at Arthur's court. End of chapter 15